bless you guys. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Amen. I'm glad y'all are here. When I sit down, I don't get to see everyone coming in. And when I stand up in the pulpit, I get the full picture. And it's an amazing Sunday morning, isn't it? Amen. Um, Liz, we're going to dismiss the children in just a second. But Liz, I want to ask, are, can you come on up? All right. Um, Lizzie has something that she would like to share with us as her church family, and I won't give her plenty of opportunity. Go right ahead. Well, for years I've struggled whether I was really saved or not. And about two months ago, um, my dad gave me a few verses to study. And one of the verses that really stuck out to me was Romans ten thirteen: Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I've called on his name, and I know I'm saved, so Amen. I'm Amen. Amen. Come here, sweetheart. My sister in Christ, she has called upon the Lord because the Lord, there's the term, effectually has called you to him and you responded. And um, we have talked. I have talked with April and Jay extensively and we prayed together. Uh, you're the real deal. I think the Lord has changed your demeanor. He's changed. You, you told me that you feel a sense of peace in your spirit that you've not felt before. And that's always a good indicator the Holy Spirit has changed a heart. And so we uh, we accept your testimony this morning. We accept you as a sister in Christ. And after our service today, we will all convoy to the Spring Creek baptismal spot, and we will baptize you this afternoon. Correct? Yes, sir. All right. Praying there's no thunder, no lightning. If we see lightning, we may have to uh, either pray for the Lord to bring blue skies or postpone. But I don't think we're going to have that today. I think it's clearing up, and I think it's going to be a beautiful afternoon. Amen? Let's all pray for Lizzie right now together. Can we do that? Father God, we, we thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to proclaim to us that the kingdom of heaven is now here and that salvation through him is possible. And Lord, we thank you that your spirit has called Lizzie to you. You've drawn her to you. You've shown her her sin. You've shown her the need for salvation. And Lord, she cried out to you as your word says. And thank you for listening to her heart. Thank you for listening to her genuine purity. And Lord, we thank you that you've allowed us to witness this and to come alongside her as a family. And Lord, as we worship today, and as we leave here to be bab- to baptize Lizzie as she follows in obedience, Lord, I pray that you'd just bless this day. You would bless Lizzie, our sister. She's a dear one, and we're so excited. So thank you, Father, and please be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, God bless you. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. As we continue in this wonderful gospel, we now come to a very uh, interesting passage that has been uh, interpreted different ways throughout Christian history. And today, as always, God's Word is always relevant, even today. So just because uh, the ancient church interpreted it one way doesn't mean that it's not relevant to us today. And so uh, Matthew chapter 19 Verses 10 through 12 was where we'll be. And, and so in this text, I mean, the call to being single in our culture is much different than being called to chastity 
and even perhaps celibacy in Scripture. And we're going to unpack some of that. But this call that to, to be unmarried is a call to spiritual chastity. And once again, I mean, what we're going to see here is that the 12 disciples are going to ask Jesus the wrong question, particularly about divorce and remarriage. And this interaction between Jesus and his 12 concerns the call of chastity. And it, but this does reveal the divine purpose that God has for love and relationships as well. I mean, the, the striking takeaway that we're going to see here from Jesus is that to not be married is a gift. If this is so, then why do single adults, particularly those who have never been married before, see the single life as a burden or a curse? I mean, why do evangelical Christians even speak of the single life this way? We elevate, rightly so, marriage and family. Yet sometimes we may look at those who are not married with no family as less than. So we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that today. I mean, our Lord does instruct us about the divine purpose of love and human relationship in marriage, particularly to this marriage covenant. The idea of covenant is always in Scripture emphasized and never taken lightly. And Jesus does this in ways that we cannot grasp apart from His help and, and the Holy Spirit's illumination of the Word. And so if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And let's read Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12 together. The disciples said to Him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray this morning of, for your divine help and assistance in understanding the word from your son Jesus here. Lord, we live in a modern age where marriage has become less and less important. The sanctity of that bond between man and woman, Lord, that you have initiated is something that our culture no longer sees as, as sacred or holy. Lord, even the words of your son Jesus here indicate that the single life, the unmarried life, is one that is unique and that only a few can accept. But Lord, the marriage bond is something that is so intimately connected to your love for us. It shows us not only an intimate bond with one another, but it shows us your intimate bond with your people. And so, God, I pray this morning you would help us to discern and understand the words of your Son. Many in this room are wrestling with whether to be married or not be married. There are some who are in a marriage relationship who are even struggling and thinking that being unmarried would be better. All of this, Lord, are these are struggles that we have in our sin. And so, God, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your love and your glory. 
Help us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. When we look here at verse 10, here's what we see. I mean, just as Peter does back in chapter 18, verse 21, and the Pharisees do in the previous passage we looked at last week in chapter 19, verses 3 and 7, the disciples interrupt, or they interpret, they interpret Jesus' teaching and they ask Jesus a question. But Jesus, he's going to show us once again here in verses 10 and 11, it, that they ask the wrong question with the wrong interpretation. We've seen that pattern here in chapters 18 and 19. It's a common reaction that they have. They, they interpret Jesus' teachings incorrectly, and Jesus must correct them and tell them, no, this is what I mean. Here's what they say. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's what they conclude. That's their interpretation of Jesus' teaching about divorce and adultery. I mean, the disciples' statement here in verse 10, I mean, it's in reaction to this declaration of Jesus to the Pharisees as the Pharisees misunderstood the the meaning of divorce and adultery. I mean, remember, verse 9 is considered by contemporary biblical scholars as the exception clause. You can get out of your marriage if there's adultery. It's the exception clause. It's almost like a get-out-of-jail-free verse. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I mean, we looked at that last week. This teaching in that verse has opened up a lot of different understandings and interpretations throughout the church about whether Christians should or should not divorce, whether Christians who are divorced should or should not remarry. We looked at that last week. I mean, the response by the disciples here in verse 10 actually indicates that they wanted to attempt an avoidance of sin if this was the problem, particularly the sin of adultery. Here's what they said, it is better not to marry. That's, that was their interpretation. But ironically, I think the takeaway here from verses 11 through 12 by many is that it's better for a Christian not to marry at all. It's almost like they're agreeing with the disciples here. I mean, the church has a long tradition that the clergy were to take vows of celibacy and they point to this text as a key teaching. And the church also gleans from the Apostle Paul, and we're going to look at uh, Paul's argument to the Corinthian church as well today. I mean, the reaction by the disciples, actually, when you look here at verse 10, it is better not to marry. I mean, it's a strict interpretation of Jesus' words. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And, and so the disciples take away from that, well, if, that's, if that danger is there, then it's better not to marry in the beginning. But Jesus intended to be more consistent here on divorce than the Pharisees were. Because they, the Pharisees were of a sect that did not permit divorce except for a wife's adultery, a wife's unfaithfulness. But these Pharisees did not consider remarriage as adulterous. Jesus, I think, he's showing the greater seriousness of divorce in his, in his teaching. If one divorces without valid grounds, the marriage is not truly dissolved, and any subsequent marriage, according to Jesus, is adulterous. I think that's pretty clear. Some see this statement as just hyperbole rather than literal. But Jesus here, I think he states the truth in a way as to make an important point. Divorce 
must never be taken lightly. It's the result of sin, and it is permitted, but it's never commanded. I mean, is there a conclusion that it is better not to marry? I mean, that's what these, that's what these disciples say here in verse 10. Is this conclusion praiseworthy or is it blameworthy? I mean, we see, we, I mean, we could really state this question from the disciples in a different way. In their view, here's what they're saying here in verse 10. Marriage must surely be a trap. I mean, a snare of adultery rather than a blessing. So for them, here's what they're expressing. Marriage is dangerous. What if she burns the biscuits? What if she turns out to be a shrew? You know what a shrew is? Marriage, according to them, should be better avoided altogether. Now, the traditional view of Christian marriage held by most American couples in previous generations saw the benefits of marriage, and part of those benefits were economic, and part of those benefits were relationships. I mean, there, but the thing is, there's now a trend in adults in their 20s to delay marriage or to avoid marriage altogether. Have you seen this trend in the generation coming up? Marriage, according to them, is to be avoided. The cost is too high. So is, is our current generation of 20-somethings agreeing with the disciples here? It's too high of a cost to be married. Better not get married at all. The disciples, I think, here in verse 10, they're, they're betraying their ideas on marriage here. When they say it is better not, here's what they're thinking. It's the idea, uh, uh, the, the Greek word here is semphere. It's something that is not profitable, something that is not beneficial, so the idea of marriage that they're expressing here is that it, that a marriage should be a profitable arrangement. If one cannot ensure profitability with a wife, then it would be best to either have the freedom to divorce her or not marry her in the first place. The disciples argue here for an exit clause in the contract. Jewish men, this, under, I mean, they took the right of divorce for granted in this time. That's what's happening here. Many marriages, think about this, were prearranged marriages. And marriage partners did not always turn out to be as compatible as they first were seen or expected. So to marry without some kind of an escape clause made the prospect of marriage very frightening. Can you imagine being set up in a prearranged marriage, not knowing who you were marrying, and then later realizing how horrible it is. So that's the Jewish idea of marriage. If, if, if prearranged marriages are the norm, then the Mosaic law say, well, you know, it's not God's will, but you can get out of this if it doesn't work out. That's what these disciples were expressing. Okay. So, but let's compare this to our current trend among millennials and Gen Zers. Right? These are the generations born in the 1980s and 1990s. Got some folks in this room who are in that generation. For them, the millennials and the Gen Zers, they say the trend is not to marry at all or at least marry at a much older age. Here's some statistics. Since the 1960s, the average age for marriage has actually risen to 27 years old for women, 29 years old for men. That's now the average According to a recent report of the Urban Institute, 
there's an unparalleled number of millennials who will remain unmarried through age 40. That's now the trend. I guess even further, the marriage rate is predicted to continue to drop. Now, ironically, the divorce rate has somewhat stabilized in our culture. But that's countered by the fact that not many people are getting married now. See the difference? I mean, in, in fact, a paper out by the Pew Research Center reports that this is the biggest drop in marriage rate in human history, or at least American history, I should say. Probably, let's keep it in the American culture, American history. It's the largest drop in marriage rate in American history. That's what we're currently seeing. Today's young adults are slow to get married, to tie the knot, if you will. And a rising share may end up not getting married at all. Some of you in this room, may you're, you're hearing me and you're agreeing. You're seeing that in your peers. You're seeing that in the young generation coming up. According to the Pew Research projections, based on the 2010 census data, I couldn't find anything for 2020. This was actually in a 2014 report. When today's young adults reach their mid-40s and to mid-50s, a record high are likely to have never been married at all, roughly 25% or more by the time they're in their 40s or 50s, have never been married. That's the new trend. Y'all seeing that? One of the primary reasons for these trends is that millennials and Gen Zers are facing many challenges when it comes to having a firm economic foundation. They often view marriage not as the cornerstone of the adult life that then becomes the, the basis for building an adult life, they see marriage as a capstone. In other words, once you get married, that's it. You can't advance or grow anymore. That's the new shift. Whereas it used to be marriage was the cornerstone. Now we can grow and prosper together. But the view is, no, if we get married, now we're going to limit one another. That's the capstone. That's the mentality. But research shows that this capstone approach may actually lead to the worst preparation for marriage, and it results in less marital satisfaction. Y'all seeing this in the trends? A second possible reason that the marriage rate is down is the discouraging high divorce rate that this generation has suffered through. I mean, this is a phenomenon that has touched their lives in a profound way. I grew up in a divorced household. My generation. And it's gotten even worse since then. This generation of millennials and Gen Zers, they read about divorce online. They are actually products of their own parents' divorce. And they have many friends with divorced parents. So this generation of young marriage-age adults, they carry lots of baggage with them. It's almost as if they are refugees of the divorce culture that their parents and grandparents gave them. See where we're at? So really, what the disciples are saying here in Matthew 19, verse 10, is nothing new. When they say it is better not to marry, that's the attitude of this generation in our country right now. Verse 11. But he said to them, this is Jesus responding to this mentality. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. 
I think the question from these disciples, again, is, is, it can be easily compared to the current idea of the millennials about marriage. And our Lord's response to the disciples is the same response, I think, to the generation that is struggling now. Verse 11 and following, I think, is their message. His response to them may remind young adults of our culture that they are asking the wrong question. They're reaching the wrong conclusion about marriage and divorce. If it's too difficult, why bother? That's, that's, that's the mentality. I mean, Jesus here, he's teaching here that, that, that it's, it's often been taken by the church to extreme lengths. What he says here in verse 11 has led to many different interpretations within church history. Did Jesus truly want his disciples to see celibacy as the complete doctrine of marriage for the church? He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to whom it is given. Now, now, now let's think this. We see Jesus here. He's shifting the lesson to the true nature of marriage as it was intended to be. Remember that what he said back in Matthew 19, 8, he said, from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. The idea of divorce was not there. The key word here in verse 11 is to receive. Here's what it says. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. That's the key word. In other words, the way to understand this way of receiving the gift to not marry, really you could say it, it's difficult for someone to hold on or to contain or to handle the life of, of celibacy or chastity. I mean, there's a lot there when, when you have that life of chastity and celibacy. When you were not married, there's a lot there that not many people can control. Chastity, let's make sure we define the differences here. Chastity means that you willingly abstain from sexual immorality. So really you could say that even in the marriage relationship, you are still chaste. But celibacy goes a little bit deeper. Celibacy has a connection to a holy vow of chastity. It's usually connected with... Uh, willingly submitting yourself to a life of celibacy in the service to the kingdom of heaven, service to the church. That's, there's a long history of that in the church. To avoid marriage or to avoid sexual union means that you will clearly avoid any kind of connection here between a man and a woman. That's celibacy, but it's in the context of holy service. I mean, let's be honest here. From the time of puberty into adulthood, particularly when you're in your 20s and 30s, these are years of fertility for men and women, years of childbearing. Men and women have biological drives that only marriage can bind. Adults who are here are married, you agree. So if it is better not to marry, Jesus says that only a special gift can grant the strength to handle the biological or even social desires to be with someone. Chastity is not singleness as our current culture sees it. Chastity is a gift that only a few can make room for in their lives. That's why Jesus is saying only a few can receive this. Only a few can handle this. A life of genuine chastity means just that. 
Remember back in Matthew 19, 9, the idea of sexual immorality here is the idea of porneia. A life of genuine chastity means no porneia. No immoral bonds outside of marriage. No adultery as a single person. Marriage is that bond between a man and a woman that God himself initiated back in Genesis chapter 2. When God says it is not good that man should be alone. And what does he do? He creates Eve and brings her to the man. Now, I think it would be prudent here to compare Jesus' teaching with the words of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at that here in a minute deeper. But in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, here's what Paul says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You see that? That's the biblical understanding of this. So, but in Matthew 19, verses 11 and 12, Jesus, he, he's indicating that it is good to be alone, to be a eunuch. He speaks of three conditions that bring on the life of the eunuch. We'll look at that here in a second. But Jesus is convinced here that the unmarried life, a genuine life of celibacy, is a gift to only some. Not a command to all. I mean, if celibacy had been Jesus' highest desire for all Christians, then I think he would have answered his disciples a different way. He would have said, exactly, now pray for this gift. But he doesn't say that. But Because think about this. If, if God expected all Christians to be celibate, there would be no subsequent generations born to carry on and flourish the church, would there? Y'all see where we're at? I mean, Jesus, however, makes both marriage or non-marriage an act of a spiritual gift granted to an individual. I mean, being married requires the spiritual gift of God's strength and his mercy and his kindness, doesn't it? Just same way, I mean, being non-married requires even the same or more. I mean, Jesus is not giving this decision over to an individual act of the will left to our sinful ability to choose. Let's think about this. If we were left to our ability to choose, we may not marry, but we definitely will not be chaste, much less celibate, if it was up to us. We may not marry, but I know very, 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 very few people that could honestly say, I'm not married, but I'm also chaste. I mean, the single life is not for everyone. I mean, actually, the biblical evidence is that the single life is only for a few. That, that, that means the majority, the vast majority of all of the church should marry. Actually, can we go so far as to say that the majority of all Christians in the church must marry? I would go that far. I'm a firm advocate for marrying younger than later. Now, I was married at 22 and I thought I was waiting too long. See where we're headed? We got some folks in this room probably married at 16. There was a time where you'd get married at 14. Yeah, Rhonda's grandma got married at 14. Now we got this generation saying, well, I'm not ready to marry. I'm just, I'm just 30 years old. I'm not mature enough yet. See where we're headed? So Jesus' point in verse 11 is there is a gift but remember what Jesus' mission was. His mission was to salvage the distorted, fallen world back to the way it was in the beginning and better. Marriage was not a burden placed on Adam. Marriage was a gift of God to Adam. 
And in our fallen world, we've distorted this. Now let's look here at verse 12 as Jesus now illustrates his point with three examples of the celibate life. He uses the illustration of the eunuch. The first, let's read verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, three, three examples here. There are eunuchs born without the ability to consummate a marriage. You could have been born this way. So by that, you are automatically a eunuch. But then there are eunuchs made this way by castration, usually in the service of a royal, the royal court, or as punishment for a crime. There are many in this room, and when we talk about uh, the crime rate of rape and that kind of thing, they're calling for castration to come back. But then thirdly, Jesus talks about eunuchs who make themselves, and they do so for the sake of the kingdom. And these are words, let's imagine here, I mean, really, I mean, literally talking this way gives a gross impression. So is Jesus shocking the disciples? Maybe. But I think most likely the custom of, here's the, here's the word eunuching, it was a very common term in the language of the day, and it was probably more common. The gift that Jesus speaks of is the human will to make oneself a eunuch to make oneself celibate for the kingdom of heaven. Now, the apostle Paul advocates for this last option for any who seek to do the work of God's kingdom in a less restricted way. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, if you want to turn there. Here's what the apostle Paul says. And he's, he's echoing what Jesus is teaching and actually explains it in more detail and more in more practical application. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, the idea of, of having sexual relations in this thing is to, you could translate that, it is better not to marry a woman, or literally the word here, sexual relations, implies to light or to kindle within a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See what Paul is teaching here about the, the beauty of marriage. It causes, by God's design, the union between men and women to be God-ordained and holy if it's in the right place and right time and right manner under the marriage covenant. But look, continuing in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 6. Here's what Paul says even further. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. What's Paul talking about in verse 7? 
when he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, most scholars agree he's talking about he's a single man. He's not married. We don't understand whether he was married before and lost his family when he came to faith or whether he never married at all. There's a lot of debate there, and that's, that's a mute point. The point is, while he's writing here, he's indicating that he's not married. Verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, what should they do? They should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I've actually had some pastors when I was younger tell me that verse. Better get married, boy. Better get married. Better, better to marry than to burn, they would say, right? I mean, Paul's, I think he, he's, he's making a pretty direct point here as well. It's better to marry than to allow your passions to burn within you and lead to more sin. So verse 12, here's what Jesus, actually, yeah, Matthew 19, verse 12. Let's go back there. Matthew 19, verse 12. As Jesus continues here, here's what he says at the end of verse 12. Let the one who is able to receive this gift, receive it. Jesus is being direct here and honest. If you are able to, and really the term receive is to handle or to control. Can you handle this life, this gift of not being married? If you're able, then take it. But what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 is, if you can't and you marry, it's not a sin. The person who can handle a celibate life asks for the gift of God to sustain it so that they can serve His kingdom honestly. And for the second time, Jesus makes the gift of being unmarried, important here. Where the disciples saw the single life or the unmarried life as the best alternative to where you're going to fail in marriage and commit adultery, so it's better not to get married at all. That's what they were saying. Jesus here shows that from the beginning, it was intended that an intimate connection between man and God would be a great gift, just like an intimate connection between man and woman would be a great gift. I mean, there's no decree here from Jesus that the holiest of his disciples should be celibate. Instead, if one can successfully choose and honestly live a celibate life, you would be free to be more intimate with God the Father alone and Christ alone. That's what he's saying. But if you do this, he's saying you should ask for it. If one can handle the expectations of celibacy, then one may do that but it's difficult. Notice that Jesus does not say, seek to be a disciple who can handle and receive the gift of self. He's not saying that. Instead, what does he say? Let the one who can. He's not saying that we're all commanded to be unmarried as Christians. He's saying those who can do this, those who are able, if one finds that he or she can handle the special demands of celibacy, then by all means, I argue, let that person launch into this wild adventure of intimate relationship with Christ for the sake of the kingdom, if you're able to do it. But very, very, very few people are. Very few. I would say less than 1%. <laughs> would you agree? I mean, I know some folks who were married, were widowed, and served the rest of their life in holy communion with the Lord and served the kingdom well. 
I've known some folks who were never married at all, and they just saw their future life as a life alone, but they connected with God in a way that was much different than what a, a married man and woman does. I mean, yeah, men, men and women who are married, we share this connection with God, but think about someone who is not connected to a wife or a husband. Think about how intimate, more intimate that life with God seems to be. While the traditional interpretation here, verse 12, by the, I mean, the ancient church fathers saw this and they ushered in the high value of a monastic life. Remember the monastic orders. Many of them are still around. Matter of fact, just up here in Kentucky near Bardstown, Kentucky, uh, near where all the whiskey is brewed. This irony. There is a, a monastery of, of monks. Thomas Merton, if you know that name from the sixties and seventies, lived there. And I know many Southern Baptist seminary professors from Louisville, Kentucky, they won't tell it publicly, but Southern Baptist seminary professors from Louisville, Kentucky went to this Catholic monastery for spiritual retreats all the time. So monasteries are still around. Oh, we got one in the back who just confessed. Yeah, he's been there. More than once. Now, the monastic life, again, is not a tradition in the Protestant evangelical tradition. It's more so in the Catholic tradition and even in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. But this is one of the texts that they take from. I mean, Jesus here, he elevates the unmarried life next to the married life as co-equal value, though. He's really not elevating one above the other. He's saying that both lifestyles are dignified. The faithful marriage honors God. Just so the faithful celibate life also honors God. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he echoes this doctrine here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, when he says, live as you are called. Here's what he says. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. That's what Paul says. The key here is faithfulness. Jesus said, it, 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 as it was intended in the beginning. See, the Protestants praise marriage as laudable. Yet, the, think, think about this. We also relegate the single person to second class in the church. Unintentionally, but it's there. Talk to a single person in a church who's never been married, or someone who has been married and been divorced, or someone who's been married and widowed. In the evangelical church, they don't have a place anymore. They feel out of place. And I'll share this. Um, 20 years ago, I was widowed. And I came to church the week after the funeral. And I walk into the church and they meant well, they intended well. But I was still grieving. I still saw myself as somehow married. You guys understand this. That day I came back from the funeral, the week later, somebody grabbed me by the arm and took me to the singles class. That day. That's what we do. We, 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 we decline, we, we put people down because they're not married. Men are women here today. There may be somebody here today. You may be in a place in your adult life where you're not married. I mean, this may be through divorce. It may be from when you were widowed or that you've just never been married before. There's some in this room who are in that position. I want to say you are in a special place, a unique place that Jesus says is a gift. 
Here's what the Apostle Paul says again in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, here's what he says, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry, here's what he says, will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Let's just be honest. Being married is work. It's good work. But it's work that, according to the Apostle Paul, can shift your shift the focus of the unmarried person away from the kingdom of God. Because when you're married, you're working on honoring the kingdom of God, but you're working together to honor the kingdom of God and not kill each other before you all get to heaven. Married people are laughing because they know. <laughs> also with that, you've got responsibility of children, family, home work, those kind of things that come with the married life is a good life and God honors that life and it glorifies God just as equally as the person who is not married. But Paul is being honest here. If you can remain unmarried, if if God can give you that gift, you're in a different place. But yet, may I emphasize that this passage of Scripture focuses on the idea of the celibate life, not the contemporary concept of being single. And I want to clarify the differences here. To be single is to be free to go and do whatever you want. But there are obvious pitfalls of sexual immorality that the single idea overlooks. Y'all hearing the truth here? To be single means you're free to do whatever you want, but you ignore the immorality that can come from that. The idea of celibacy is the idea that needs to be seen as a gift from God that permits a distraction-free life for the focused service to the Lord's kingdom. And it's a very rare gift indeed. You see the difference? To be celibate means that you not only see yourself as unmarried, you also see the challenges of remaining pure. I mean, how does the unmarried person who wants to be married respond to this text of Jesus? The unmarried person who does not sense the gift of God for the celibate life. I think the context of the teaching from Jesus here in Matthew 19, these are actually words of encouragement here. But it's in the context of the suffering life of the disciple. I mean, we see in Matthew's chapter 16, 17, and later in chapter 20, the words of Jesus and the truth on this life as the Christian as one of suffering, especially as a disciple. The single Christian may have to endure the unmarried life. The single Christian may not necessarily like it, but they may be called to endure it. Matthew 16, 21, here's what Jesus says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And if we follow Christ, we're going to follow that as well. And then in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. 
And then in Matthew 20, we're not there yet, later we read, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. The Apostle Paul gives us words of encouragement in the suffering that the Christian must endure. And the suffering temptations that a single adult will have. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the life of the unmarried Christian means that you may be called to endure the suffering and the torment within you to be married. That may be another call to endure suffering. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 19, it's a gift. It's a gift. You see that? I mean, the gift of celibacy that Jesus speaks of is the gift of endurance in the celibate life. And I want to emphasize the idea of celibacy here over just being single. To endure with Christ is really the greatest of all gifts, isn't it? To endure alongside him as he suffered. But let's not confuse this teaching on the gift of celibacy as a teaching against marriage. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Both are gifts from God. And let's be reminded that God gave Eve to Adam as a gift, a helper fit for him. God also gave Jesus the gift of celibacy. He gave the apostle Paul the gift of celibacy. Many, but, but many of the 12 apostles were married. Some of them were not. Many of them were. So how do we leave this morning hearing from Jesus here? If we are married, live in it as a gift from God to the very end. Amen? Some of the wives and husbands in here are going, oh, I have to endure this. It shouldn't be an endurance. It should be a blessing. Honor God in your marriage. If we're not married, whether you're widowed or you're divorced or you've never been married, live in it as a gift from God. Honor God in this life that he has given you. A life of celibacy is what I emphasize here for those who are not married. Seek our Lord's strength to endure it and live it well. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your son Jesus speaks truth here to his disciples, and he speaks it to us. Lord, I pray those uh, of this generation who are of marriage age, who are struggling with whether marriage is, is worth it or not, that they would hear these words from, your seven, from our Savior, your Son, that marriage is worth it. But if you cannot be married, if you're called not to be married, then you're called to a holier existence of celibacy, not that they're set apart 
or elevated in different value, but it's a different life that requires strength from on high. Lord, I do pray this morning that the words of your son would resonate with all who are here. Those who are married, Lord, I pray you would encourage them to love one another and honor you in that life. For those who are not married, I pray, God, that you would give them the strength and the gift to remain chaste and to give you honor in that life. But God, as we, as we close, I pray that you would just pour your spirit of, of mercy and love into each and every one of us. Give us the strength necessary to endure this life of sin and suffering that we are in. You've given us the gift of forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ, but we need you to continue living in this world. So Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.